Do we have sound? Oh, we do. All right, guys. <sighs> I made these little timer things, and I find that I start getting stressed out. It's like it's going, it's 40 seconds, and I got to get up there. <laughs> victimized by my own doing. The Lord's blessed us with a new projector we can actually see without turning off all the lights. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, and it's actually somewhat adjusted. <laughs> Rub it in. Yeah. No, praise the Lord. I'm I, uh, excited. I walked in here this morning and went, wow, I, there's actually glare on the ceiling from the thing. <sighs> Let's pray, guys. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that we could set this time aside to come into your presence, to come before you, Lord, with a, a heart and attitude of expectancy to hear from you. And Lord, so we, we just commit ourselves toward that end this morning. We pray, Father, that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that truly understand what it is you have for each of us. Thank you, Lord. We pray also that you would uh, uh, just have your hand on uh, the other ministries here with the kids and I uh, pray, Father, that you would, uh, the name of Jesus would simply be lifted up. And as we look this morning, Lord, uh, at the, these things that Jesus does in this man's life, that you would just help us to be able to apply your word to our lives. We give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 9. Wow. Almost halfway through this gospel. We're in our ninth month in it, kind of averaging about a chapter a month. <laughs> and today is not going to be any different. We're going to cover seven whole verses. <laughs> but this is a rich chapter. I mean, it, the chapter is all about one thing, but it's about several things. And it's really a continuation of John chapter 8. At the end of John chapter 8, Jesus said some pretty remarkable things to the religious leaders who were, by this point, just clenching their jaws with this guy. And then he leaves because they picked up rocks, probably the very same rocks that the guys dropped with the woman that had been caught in the act of adultery early in chapter 8. And uh, they're in the, the treasury, the, the court of the women in the temple, where there wouldn't have been any dirt. They pick up rocks and they're going to stone him. And he slips through their midst, midst and, he, and he leaves. And so uh, as we look at this, I'm going to read through the passage that we're going to be in this morning, the first seven verses, and then we'll come back and we'll unpack it a bit. Uh, so it says in verse 1 of John chapter 9, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man that was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go. Wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. And so he went and he washed and he came back seeing. 
Born blind. That's a condition that is not uncommon to man. We're going to see in this, uh, I'll outline the chapter here in a moment, but we're going to see in this that this is the condition that all of us are born into. We are born spiritually blind. We are born spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2 is very clear. Paul says, and you were dead. (laughs) Not just kind of kicking a little bit, but dead. But he made us alive. Uh, And that we once walked according to the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, and all of that that he says in Ephesians 2, a powerful passage. And yet, all of us need to be made alive spiritually. We need to be given sight spiritually. We're going to see that in this chapter. This is the sixth of eight miracles that Jesus does in the Gospel of John. Why does he do these miracles? And he tells us that, talked about it before, but I'll keep hammering it home till we get to that part of the book. Uh, In chapter 20, verse 31, he says that we would believe. And then in believing, we would have life in his name. Very simple, folks. This gospel was written for our instruction. It was written that we may believe. And, and remember, we talked about it at the beginning of this. John has two purposes in writing this. He's going to give us an account of the life of the, the ministry of Jesus, yes. But he also, this is an apologetic. Uh, and it's also a, a tool that he uses to evangelize because it's his burden that people would come to believe in this Jesus. Here, late in the first century, as he wrote this, as an old man. Uh, his desire was that people would see that Jesus is indeed the Christ. And that's exactly what Jesus is laying out for the people over and over and over again. Remember, we've looked at this many times. There's a pattern here in the Gospel of John where Jesus does something in the physical that has a metaphysical meaning. Beyond the physical is what metaphysical means. And I don't want to sound weird or new agey, but we all have a metaphysic. I've spoken of that before. The metaphysical is what do you believe that goes beyond the physical? And Jesus lays out the true metaphysic here, and you can look around and see all kinds of weird garbage out there that people are peddling uh, as far as a metaphysic beyond the physical, what's taking place. But we know that the Bible is truth. Again, talked about that, talked about subjective truth as opposed to objective truth, subjective truth being... uh, part and parcel with emotion and bias and opinion and all of that. Not really truth at all. Could be truth, but very easily could not be. But then objective truth, being based in fact. And if you have come to the Lord and accepted the Bible as fact, then you can rely on this as the, not a, but the source for truth. And so that's why he's writing these things. Outline of chapter 9. Longest chapter, about 41 verses. The first seven we're going to look at this morning, and that's the physical healing of the man born blind. The second, verses 8 through 12, is when he is questioned by his neighbors. He says he came back. He returned seeing Jesus wasn't there anymore. Interesting. We'll talk about that. Uh, But then his neighbors, the people that knew him, he comes back and they start to examine him and question him. And some of them go, well, he's, yeah, that's him. And some of them, well, he kind of looks like the guy, but... You know, they're seeing this guy who is seeing now, and they're not really believing it, so they're trying to figure out, well, he just looks like him. And so then the third thing is when he is interrogated, he gets interrogated twice by the religious leaders, by the Pharisees. They, his neighbors cart this guy off to the Pharisees, and in verses 13 through 17, we see the first interrogation of the man by the religious leaders. 
and <laughs> there's some great interaction. I can't wait till we get there. I mean, it's sort of a continuation. We talked about in John chapter 8 that this is a heated exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders. I mean, it is definitely filled with conflict. I mean, uh, we talked about last week where Jesus, I mean, he, I just picture him in the court of the women squaring off with these guys with a huge crowd around him saying, you are of your father, the devil. And I mean, and the people would have been stunned at that statement. It looked at the people, the leaders and see how they can respond. And they respond and they're getting rocks. And, you know, maybe I'm getting ready to duck or whatever. I mean, this is a powerful scene that's going on. And he leaves and that's where this takes place. So they interrogate this guy uh, and then they don't really quite buy what he's saying. And so they say, well, let's talk to his parents. And, and so they go and they interrogate this guy's parents. Their parents, his parents are afraid of what uh, the Pharisees could do because it had already been passed around that if you're going to confess Jesus as the Christ, you're going to get the boot. And they didn't want to get the boot, so they said, well, he's old enough, talk to him. And so they talk to him again, and they interrogate the guy a second time, and that ends up with him literally being excommunicated from their midst. I mean, they kick him out. Uh, he has some great things to say when we get there. And the reason I'm, I'm going through this now is you really have to understand the full context of this chapter to understand the passage that we're going to be in this morning because it's only a portion of it, but you, I want you to see the whole thing. You remember I've talked about when we look at these things, we zoom out, we look at the whole thing, and then we zoom in. So this morning we're zooming out to begin with so that we can catch the flow of the entire chapter and understand a little bit about what's going on here. And then we're going to zoom in and we're going to look at some very specific things with the first seven verses. So they interrogate the guy's parents and they bring him back in. They interrogate him. They kick him out. Jesus gets hold of that information and he comes to the guy. Now he comes to the guy. Remember, this guy's never seen Jesus. And he comes to the guy and he begins to ask him some questions and to lay out what is taking place. And this guy comes to faith fully. And so the last section in verses 35 to 41 is the spiritual healing of this man born blind. And so we see that he receives physical sight early on, and it's not until the end of the chapter that he receives spiritual sight. Uh, fascinating chapter. I, I'm looking forward to the different studies we have. Haven't figured out how many we're going to have yet, but uh, at least two, because we're not going to get through it this morning. Interesting, with the, the spiritual healing, uh, again, We've looked at this many times in the Gospel of John where Jesus will do something. He does something in the physical realm. And, and the expectation is that the people would take that and apply it and see something spiritual about what he's doing in the physical. Remember, he made bread. He had the five loaves and the two little, uh, or the three little fish. And, uh, and, and he makes lunch for 5,000 men, 15,000 people probably. And, and, and his expectation was that they would see that he is indeed who he claims to be and he has the ability to forgive sin. But they just stop short thinking, well, he knows how to feed us. And so they track him down the next day and they want him to make bread again. Reminding him, well, Moses gave the people bread every day, so you ought to too, you know, that kind of a thing. But their, their vision continually fell short. You know, when he tells the, the religious leaders, destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. And they go, oh, well, it took 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to do that? It, they fall short. Well, what he does here in this chapter is he gives them both. He doesn't leave any room for their 
understanding to fall short because he does something in the physical. He heals this guy's blindness, something that only God could do. And they knew it. The, the religious leaders knew it. But then he heals this guy spiritually. So we see him make the jump for us in this from the physical to the spiritual. And this chapter is all about that because that is the work of God that Jesus is going about doing in this. So we look at it in the physical realm and you and I looking through our own physical eyes, we know that seeing is believing, right? I mean, I saw that car accident on the corner and I believe that those two cars got crunched up. I mean, it's pretty simple. But in the spiritual realm, we've talked about it many times, guys, in this upside down kingdom that we are a part of, the opposite applies. Because it's not seeing is believing. Because if that's the case, there is no room for faith. There is no room to come to a place of simply saying, you know what, Lord, I believe you did that. I believe you went to that cross for me. Because it's not seeing that equates to believing in the kingdom of God. It's believing that leads to seeing, see. So the opposite principle applies in, in the kingdom. Very often when our lives get hung up, it's because we're trying to apply physical principles to a spiritual thing and it doesn't work. It's, it's oil and water. You cannot make your life work walking according to the flesh. I mean, the Bible's full of examples about that. You have to walk according to the spirit in order to understand the spiritual things that God is putting forth in his word. And so often, and it's very sad, people endeavor to walk in the arm of the flesh. They want to do this thing in according to the flesh because they don't want to die to self is really what it amounts to. Because Paul says, I die daily. And they want to walk according to the flesh, but sort of try to work in the principles of the kingdom. And I, I'll submit to you, it's like trying to live your life with one foot on a pier and one foot in a boat. Have you ever done that, that transition from the pier to the boat? <laughs> Don't stay there. You'll end up in the water. And that's what happens. You can't have one foot in both. You have to be all in or all out. Jesus talks about the, that in the book of Revelation when he addresses the church at Laodicea. And it's not a pretty picture for that church. Bad report card. I look at report cards in the seven churches there. You know, Philadelphia getting the greatest one. Laodicea, not so much because they were trying to live with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. And it will never work. We will struggle individually. We, you will struggle as a Christian if you want to live your life with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. Now, I'm not saying that you're not effective in the world. You don't take responsibility for the things that you have to do. I'm just saying that as your heart is engaged, that, you know, Jesus talks about that. He says, you can't serve both. You can't serve the world, mammon, and God. It has to be one or the other. See some great things that have to do with that here. We're going to begin here. Uh, well, let's see. A couple other comments here. One thing is, when talking about blindness, in the New Testament, there are more miracles attributed to Jesus for restoring sight to a blind person than any other form of healing. He did a lot of healing. 
But, and I don't want to say this was his favorite because I don't think he did it to put on a show. That's what that kind of implies. But this was a very common thing that he did in his earthly ministry. And I believe that the powerful message in that is because of the spiritual application. He came to open the eyes of the blind. That's what he said. Remember when he went back to Nazareth and he was there in the synagogue with all the people when he started his ministry? And he told the guys, he opened the scroll of Isaiah and he, he says this whole deal. He reads this whole thing from Isaiah. Part of that was to open the eyes of the blind. It folds the scroll up, hands it to the attendant, sits down and says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your presence. I mean, this is central to the ministry and the mission that Jesus came to perform. Not because he just wanted to give blind people sight, but because he wanted to elevate their thinking to see that we are all in that place. We're all in that boat spiritually blind we don't have to be and that's the point continuation of chapter 8 he's declared himself to be the light of the world and we'll see more of that here uh, in this chapter he's declared himself to be the incarnate truth of god uh, again he continues in that vein and he declared himself to be the great i am Remember, we looked at that. We're going to start at 8.58 this morning and uh, uh, look at the great I am. He declares himself very clearly. He says, you know, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he was glad in verse 57. I don't have that up there. And they said, or 56, and they said, what are you talking about, essentially? And he says, I'm telling you, in verse 58, he says, Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am using the covenant name of God, the, the fill-in-the-blank name of God from Exodus chapter 3, there would have been no mistaking the claim that he was making, and that's why these guys set their jaws and picked up rocks, and they wanted to kill him on the spot. Not because they thought he was, and in their, they, they had, they sort of gave lip service to saying, ah, well, you know, he's, he's a sinner, he's a false prophet. That, they say that here in this chapter too, but essentially it was because they knew it was true, and they were threatened. Their whole earthly gig was threatened. They had no interest really in the things of God. They had an interest in their thing, which was a religious hucksterism that promoted themselves instead of God and their purposes instead of God's purposes. It was totally an earthly corrupt system that they represented. And they didn't like the fact that he came speaking truth. And that's why they wanted to kill him. Verse 59, it says, they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Verse 1, the physical healing of the man born blind. And now as Jesus passed by, you see the connection there? It's, it's, it's just a continuation of chapter 8. Uh, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Interesting, as I studied this, as I began studying uh, a while back and looking at this, I got, I got four words into this, and I had to stop. As Jesus passed by, and, and it was like the Lord was just wanting to get my attention, and I just kept going back to, as Jesus passed by, he sees this guy. He didn't have to stop. He's just passing by. He's getting out of the way of these creeps that are trying to throw rocks at him and, and, and punk him on the head and take his life. And, and it says he passes out of their midst, and as he's passing out of their midst, he passes by this guy that was blind. And he was a blind, probably middle-aged, we look at further in the chapter, beggar. 
essentially. He was about as poor as you could get. He had no way to make a living. He had no way to sustain his own life. And so he begged for money. And there he was on the way as Jesus is going. And a couple of things that come to mind. I want to look at a couple of attributes to Jesus as we look at this this morning that would have been why he was compelled to stop. And some great application for us. The first is submission. Jesus' life was in total submission to the Father. Now, I'm going to stop here and I'm going to do a little bit of technical teaching on this because we really need to have a right understanding of this. When we think about submission, a lot of times we think lower. I submit because I'm lower. And that is not what the Bible puts forth as submission. Um, I'll give you an example from my own life. I had wanted to do a particular, I had one business back uh, in the early, late 80s, early 90s, and I had a business and a bunch of guys working for me, and, and I had prayed for another kind of business, and I, I said, Lord, if you want me to have that kind of business, you bring, bring them to me. And one day this guy walks into my office, and he says, hey, I want to start a business. That was exactly the business I had prayed about, because I didn't have time to do it. And he said, I, you know, I want to do this, and and I said, well, you know, I'd be happy to form a, and I knew he was a brother. I wasn't going to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. He was solid. And uh, we formed a partnership. We ended up being partners for 21 years. Never had an argument because we both put God first in that business. But the point is, is I realized a couple of weeks into this thing that we both had strong personalities. We both were manager bobs. We both liked doing that part of the business. And I realized that I was going to, if this business was going to succeed without us going to loggerheads, <laughs> that I was going to have to subordinate. And I, I understood the biblical concept of subordination, what I'm talking about this morning. That didn't mean that I was going lower, that I was going to somehow be lower. We were 50%, 50-50 partners. And it worked really well. And people say, oh, you know, one's not 51. So that you, no, no, we're doing this as unto the Lord. And we can be equal partners and be okay with that. And we were. I still have a, a genuine love for this man. I mean, both of us, strong personalities, but one needed to subordinate in order for there to be order in our business. And that's what it was. When I talk about, when we look at how God has set up our homes with the man being the spiritual leader, the head of the home, it's not because the woman's less. It's not because there's anything less than total equality in the eyes of God. But for order and for accountability, he says, you know what, gentlemen, you set the, the spiritual tone in your home. And you carry that mantle. You are called to leadership. If you're married and you're a guy, you're called to leadership in your home. How you lead is something you'll give an account to God for. And, and you know what? I, I'm not saying that to head trip anybody. I'm just saying that as far as godly submission goes, Jesus was able to be fully submitted to the Father, but not be less than equal with him. There's, uh, I'm going to read this to you. Uh, this is very important, so I am stopping here for a minute. Contrary to the teaching of many cults, there is no ontological subordination. You don't have to remember the college word, the 50-cent word, but ontology is the study of nature. In other words, the nature of God. There was no difference in the nature of God. Jesus, being God the Son, being submitted to God the Father, there's no difference in their nature. In other words, there's no difference in, in the nature of the three persons of the Godhead. This means that the Trinity is not comprised of greater and lesser gods. Rather, there is one God existing eternally in three co-equal persons, okay? Three persons, one essence, essentially one God. 
That you don't understand it, that I don't understand it, doesn't mean it isn't so. It's very, very important that we have a right understanding of the Trinity and that we have a right understanding of why Jesus submitted to the Father fully. In verse 4, he says uh, of this chapter, he'll say, I must work the works of him who sent me. That's an act of submission. He is saying, I'm submitted to the Father. Now, what the Bible does teach is an economic or a relational subordination within the Trinity. The three persons of the Trinity voluntarily submit to each other, respecting the roles they perform in creation and salvation. So, the Father sent the Son into the world, and these roles are never reversed in Scripture. You will never see the Son sending the Father to do something because of this voluntary submission that takes place. These roles are never reversed. The Son never sends the Father, and likewise the Holy Spirit is sent by Jesus and proceeds from the Father to testify of Christ. And Jesus perfectly submitted his will to the Father's. Very important that we have a right understanding of that doctrinally, and that as we see how this unpacks here, Jesus is submitted to the Father, and we'll see here as, as we look further in the verses that he is doing this because the Father quickens him to stop. Uh, he must do the works of the Father. And, and, and we'll see that. In, in chapter 5, uh, verse 19 of this gospel, when we were there, we studied, that Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. But what he sees the Father do, or whatever he does, the Son does in like manner. So that's submission. Jesus is submitted to the Father. The Father quickens him. We looked last week at, at he who is of God hears the words of God. Well, Jesus hears the words of God here, and he stops. The second thing, and this is really more dear to my heart, that's the doctrinal aspect, uh, is that Jesus is compassionate. He's the embodiment of compassion. And this word in the New Testament is used 12 times of Jesus. Nine of those times are related to healing. It doesn't say that Jesus was moved with compassion in the text here. That doesn't mean he wasn't moved with compassion. He looks and he sees this guy who is blind, who is utterly helpless, and in, in human terms, without hope for any restoration of his own physical sight. And so he's moved with compassion for this guy. And I, I started to look and, and did a bit of a word study on compassion here, and I was pretty amazed. Uh, I learned some, some interesting things here. Uh, part, part I'd already studied out prior when I've taught this book, but uh, I just kind of expanded on it. The Greek word here, and it's a mouthful, is splanknizomai. Splanknizomai, that word, um, that you will definitely trip over. Say that five times real fast. Um, it literally is the word for intestines. Interesting. That word is used today, by the way. There are nerve bundles coming out of your spine called the splanchnic nerve bundles. And the splanchnic nerve bundles are the bundles that go to all of your internal organs in your lower abdomen. And what it is, is, is that he's saying, this word is used in the Bible. It's used for intestines, lower abdomen. It's also used for womb. It has to do with things in the lower part of the abdomen. What he is saying is compassion is visceral, okay? All right, understand that. And why would they use the word intestines to define compassion? I mean, that seems kind of, well, kind of gross, really. 
but this is something I came across. Some theologians have felt that this term was too rough or graphic to be used in reference to God's compassion. Using the word for intestines to refer to God's compassion is akin to our using the word guts for courage in modern English when we say, that guy really has guts. You know, and if I say that, I say, man, he has guts. That took guts, man. I'm proud of you or whatever. It means you were courageous. You just kind of went right in there and, and did. And it's the same kind of a thing. It, that's what the intonation is here with this word. Uh, and this guy says, however, I think that the New Testament writers meant to do exactly this. They were impressing on the readers of the, of the power and the force of God's compassion. The choice of such a graphic word serves to impress the New Testament Christians that God's compassion for them was rooted in his deep love for them and his sensitivity to their pain. Isn't that good? So Jesus is filled with this kind of compassion for this man. And, and you know, when we look at people with disabilities, uh, I remember we used to call them handicaps, and, and then there was a change in that word. Uh, I was reading an old commentary, and the commentary kept calling it handicap. People, oh, that's an old commentary. Uh, because it, but when we look at people who have a disability, it, it's not that that guy's mother and father sinned. It's not that he sinned. It's that we live on a fallen planet. We live in a broken, broken world. And when Jesus comes and he is filled with compassion, you look in the Gospels, you see where that word is used, that he looks out over the multitude. He sees these thousands of faces and he knows that they're caught up in sin, they're caught up in, in goofy lifestyle, they're caught up in unbelief. But it doesn't change the fact that part of who he is is a compassionate, merciful, kind, loving, caring God. And that's the God that we serve. The Bible tells us mercy triumphs over judgment, and mercy is a function of compassion. And so when we look at this, Jesus stops. Yes, he's submitted to do what the Father is compelling him to do, and he is simultaneously filled with compassion for this man who he sees, that is, he knows is blind from birth. Verse 2, And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. The prevailing thought in the first century was that, and, and there are people that will put that forth today, and it frankly just irks me when I hear people talk about, well, you're not healed because you didn't have enough faith. Uh, and they, they tie all kinds of goofy things to healing instead of looking at God's sovereignty and that God heals whom he heals and he does not heal whom he does not heal. Uh, and that doesn't mean that he's discompassionate. That just means he's sovereign. But there are people that would put forth a similar view to what they had back then. The religious leaders, Pharisaic Judaism, and I call it that because it wasn't true Judaism, but it was the Judaism that was espoused, that was put forth by the religious leaders of Jesus' day, which was just full of holes, as I talked about. Pharisaic Judaism taught that a man could actually sin in his womb, uh, in his mother's womb, not his own womb, but that a man could sin in the womb, that, that it, he could actually commit sin. And they, they go back to uh, Jacob and Esau, you know, they, that whole deal with the fight and all that. And they actually taught that that's how come. They always equated a disability or a birth defect with sin. So these guys are going with the prevalent teaching of the day when they're asking Jesus in a fair question in their minds, who sinned, 
him or his parents. They're not giving room for anything else. Uh, and, and I mean, they, the religious leaders had so broken this down that, that they taught that they actually used out of context the passage in Deuteronomy that talks about the sins of the, in Exodus, sins of the father being visited on the, the future generations. And, and that is totally out of context for what's happening here with a physical disability. It is talking about at that point, if fathers are godless, he talks about those fathers who hate me in that, in that context, that their sins will be visited on their sons and on their sons' sons and all that, sons and daughters, because they're going to model their lives after their parents. I've shared before, you know, I, I look at youth group and churches, and, and I think that they're good. They perform a good function. But why is it that 85% of youth, when they're of age, and they've been through youth group and all of that stuff, why are they out? Why are they out just doing their own thing? And I don't think it's the youth pastor's fault. The prevalent thought in the church is the youth pastor is the guy that, you know, he's the one that, that kind of is in charge of the spiritual growth and the spiritual development of my kids. Not so. When little Johnny turns 18 and he graduates high school and he goes out on his own, is he going to model his life after his youth pastor? Probably not. Almost for sure not. He's going to model his life after his dad. And same thing with, with ladies. We model our lives after our parents. And if our parents are godless and they hate God, there's a very good chance that we will too. That's the sins of the father. So that doesn't have anything, any bearing on what Jesus is dealing with here. He's talking about a physical uh, thing in this guy's life. That is not a result of that. Um, interesting. When we look at this kind of thing, you and I, uh, I, like, I want to go to the, the principle of cause and effect. You guys know what that is? Uh, I'll give you some examples. We received seven inches of rain in four hours. The underpass was flooded. Cause, effect. That's what these guys are thinking. They're thinking cause, effect. I never brush my teeth. I have five cavities. He broke his arm. The doctor put it in a cast. Here, his parents sinned. He was born blind. That's the reasoning these guys are using. That doesn't mean that this isn't a valid thing. The Bible tells us that which a man sows, he will also reap. Cause and effect. You can't escape it. But where they were looking at cause... Was that was what they were doing that was falling short of what Jesus was doing because in verse 3, Jesus says, Neither this man or his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Jesus says in this case, the answer to their question lies not in the cause, but in the purpose. That the works of God should be revealed in him. My spiritual dad, Bobby, um, I shared about him before. I went to be with the Lord a little over a year ago. And uh, we would be at a function. And, and we'd be going along. And I'd be going, yeah, well, that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just a young guy. And, 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 and he would just be sitting there kind of with this, you know, looking and listening. And, and I knew he'd be praying because that guy prayed like nobody I've ever known. And, um, and he'd say, let me ask you a question. After maybe a half an hour, we'd have a break. We'd be at a conference or something. And he'd say, uh, I'd say, What? He'd say, where's Jesus in the midst of all this? And I would look at him and he'd say, 
Everything that guy said sounds good, but I have never heard him bring Jesus into this thing. That's all the natural man. That's the natural man and his understanding and all of that. There's, there's, it's really, it's, it's pretty empty when you start looking at it. And, and I'm sitting there feeling, you know, puny because I've been going hearty amen to everything this guy said. And, and, and it was just really good because Bob was able to bring it and to, to move it into the spiritual realm uh, so often. We often look at the cause. Think of a good example here. All right. Let's say that, um, let's say I'm dealing with somebody that's grumpy. I don't have anybody in mind, especially not my wife. Um, (laughs) I just got to look like, we're going to talk after church. Um, Okay, let's say my wife is grumpy. I can go to the cause and I can say, you know, I'm really not comfortable with that and I can go in and I can get grumpy right back. Not that I ever would. (laughs) Little halo, yeah. Or I can say, Lord, what is your purpose in this? Listen to me, guys. This stuff, this principle, identifying this pattern in your life will transform it. I guarantee you, based on the word of God, because we want to go to the cause. And very often what the Lord says is, look at what my purpose is in it. Because as we begin to look at that, I can, I, I can go from feeling a little angry or a little irritated and all of that because somebody's not treating me the way I think I should be treated, and it's all about me, of course. And I could look at the cause, or I could say, Lord, what is your purpose? What's the purpose in this? These guys are looking at the cause of this guy born blind. Either well, who sinned? Here's parents. Reasonable question. Cause and effect. Jesus says, no, you're on the wrong track. It's not about the cause. It's about God's purposes in it. Why was this guy born blind? Because the works of God are going to be revealed in him. You see. So we can go down that road... Or we can look and elevate our thinking and say, Lord, what is your purpose in this trial I'm facing? I know the cause might be I don't have enough money, but what are you showing me? Is your purpose to show me that I need to rely on you for my finances? And and, I mean, there's a deeper meaning to this stuff. And Jesus is going to take these guys pretty deep. I mean, there are layers in this whole story. And so interesting, they come to him on the basis of cause. He comes back to them with the basis of purpose in mind. And he begins to reveal God's purposes to them in this. The first thing we look at is what's God's purpose regarding Jesus? And that's to confirm the claim to deity that he himself had made uh, in John chapter 8. Remember he said, unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. Said it three times. God doesn't waste words. He was very emphatic about that. And then he says, before Abraham was, I am. Four times in that chapter, he he asserts his deity. And so God's doing a sort of a living parable in this. This really, it kind of boils down to being a living parable and asserting the fact that he is God. And the father is wanting to show the son as God in this. The second is, what's God's purpose regarding the man? This is to bring about physical 
healing, of course. That's what he does. He restores his sight. Nothing had ever been done like that before. Not for a guy that had been born blind. But more importantly, he gives him spiritual sight. He grants him an entrance into his kingdom through this guy coming to faith, to, to coming to believe that Jesus is the one. And we'll see that when we get to that part in this chapter. So his purpose there was for both physical and spiritual healing. Spiritual and physical sight for this man. And his purpose regarding the Jews was to irrefutably demonstrate to them that Jesus was indeed their promised Messiah. Verse 4, he says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Again, he asserts, I am the name of God, the light of the world. So essentially what's going on here is, is Jesus is saying, when the Father chooses to work, then it's time for me to work. And I must now do it. The night of the cross is coming when I can no longer work. Oh, he can still work from heaven. But here, having a physical presence among his men, and here in this place, in this scene, as the Father compels him to stop, as he's passing by, the Father compels him to go and to minister to this man compassionately, lovingly. I mean, he comes as a humble servant to this guy. Jesus could have, I mean, he wasn't full of himself. Again, you got to remember, this is, he is, he, humility is definitely something about him. He is a humble, humble servant. And, and he, he's not puffed up with his entourage like these religious leaders were that wouldn't give someone the time of day, those filthy sinners. No, he stops because he is humble. And he is compassionate. And he is submitted to the Father's direction in this. And he begins to work with this guy. I can only imagine what the interchange would have been like to see this thing as they're his disciples standing there watching this whole thing unfold. He says, I was sent into the world to be the light of the world. And thus to give light is my function. And here is a man in darkness. Again, the spiritual implication, I pray it isn't lost on you. It's not lost on me because all of us, prior to that point where we simply decided to place faith in him, to believe the message. Who has believed our message? You know, the, the arm of the Lord is revealed, the Old Testament tells us. And that to him is granted sight. This guy could have remained blind and been given spiritual sight. Many have since. And yet, for this guy, here in this last six months of Jesus' ministry, we see that Jesus does some very significant things. Verse 6, And when he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with his saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay. You ever think about that? When Jesus heals somebody, he never used the same method. I mean, really, uh, I think I might have mentioned before, had he used spit 
and clay. I mean, it's kind of gross, but I'm sorry, but it just seems, I mean, for us, it's like, oh, somebody spit and they spit and now they want to rub it in my eyes. It's like, but he spits on the ground, he makes clay. What if he did that every time? The name of this church might not be Calvary Chapel Newburgh. It might be the third church of the Holy Mud Spitters, you know, because that's what we're doing. Our ministry, boy, we're making mud out of yeah, spit and we're having a healing service. Come on to the healing service tonight. I'm going to be spitting in the, in the dirt. Because we like to look at the method, don't we? I was thinking about that. I was thinking about these, these quote, faith healers, right? Charlatans. Uh, sorry. <laughs> they use the same method. And, and how is it that these guys go, and, you know, and, and it's like he goes and he hits somebody on the forehead and guys have already positioned themselves behind him to catch him, right? There's nowhere in God's word where that is stated or put forth. But then the next church down the road, I mean, that guy got a pretty good crowd there, you know, that night with his healing service. So we're going to do that. Come on, guys. You want to be the guys that stand behind? You want to be the guys that hits him in the head? You know, what, what, what side do you want? And it's silliness. Because Jesus doesn't use the same method. It's not about the method. It's about the man. And he never used the same method twice. Interesting. Interesting. A couple things about this, when he spits on the ground, I, you, you have to understand their culture to know he was poking these guys in the nose. Every step of this, he's poking them in the nose big time. The first thing is that there was no spitting allowed unless you spat on a rock. It was the Sabbath. We'll, we'll find out later on in this passage. It's a Sabbath day. And, and this is the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. This is a high Sabbath day. I mean, this is a like, really big, important Sabbath day. It's not just like your typical Saturday. So it's a Sabbath day, and you weren't allowed to spit on the Sabbath because if your spit hit the dirt and kind of furrowed it up, it was looked at as plowing, and that's work. Yeah. Yeah. And you could spit on a rock because then you were not plowing. I mean, they had this stuff broken down and codified to, where, to the point of ridiculous. As we look at it, we go, that's ridiculous. These guys were actually hung on it. And they actually thought that that was pleasing to God. And they were teaching other people the same. That's why when Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, when he pr pronounces the woes on the religious leaders, he says, you, you go about on land and sea for one proselyte. And when you have him, you make him twice the son of hell as yourselves. Why? Because you have so missed... You, you, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you neglect the weightier provisions of the law, such as mercy and compassion and justice. Uh, woe to us if we should ever boil God down to a set of rules. Yes, I believe that obedience as a Christian is important, but that is never the mandate. It's always the response. His grace, his love is shed abroad in my life and my heart. And he simply says, come, receive this free gift. And my response is, I want to be obedient. I want to obey. I want to live a life that counts in his sight. It's never an end towards the means. It's never, ever so that I can earn points with God. Because he is eternally satisfied with me because of the work that Jesus did on the cross. He says, all you got to do is believe it. 
and then you have life in his name. So you couldn't spit. You also couldn't work clay on the Sabbath. <laughs> Even if it was making clay out of dirt. It's work. You also couldn't heal on the Sabbath. Remember, they already got mad at him about that once. We talked about that. When he healed the guy at the pool of Bethesda, and they went, oh, you healed him on the Sabbath, you creepy guy. You know, and they got all bent out of shape with Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath. No, it was permissible if somebody was sick. Let's say that somebody had a broken leg. You could make him comfortable. But don't you dare heal him on the Sabbath because it's the Sabbath. And we know that Jesus said, you know, the Sabbath... <laughs> Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. And, and by the way, I'm not subject to the Sabbath because I kind of invented it. <laughs> Loose paraphrase, but that's what he says. He wasn't subject to the Sabbath. He made the Sabbath. He can do what he wants with the Sabbath. He's certainly not subject to these guys' rules because that was never God's intent in the beginning. And so here he's on the Sabbath day. He's, he spits on the ground, makes clay, and... <laughs> it's just amazing to me as I read these things that they would strain out a gnat and swallow a camel again. Yeah, that's what he says. And these guys are doing some major gnat straining in this. But Jesus doesn't ask their permission. He just spits, makes clay, and heals. Breaks the law three different places, in their opinion. He never broke the law of Moses, but he broke the Pharisaic Judaistic law. And he didn't care. How does this relate to chapter 8? Interesting, I, I was spending some time on my computer last night. I was looking at the periodic table. I don't know if you guys know anything about um, stuff. The periodic table is all the elements that are in the, the known universe, and they keep adding one here and there, finding some new ones. And the same elements that comprise dirt are the same elements that man is made of. We truly are made from the dust of the ground, as it says in Genesis. And Jesus is taking these guys back to Genesis. And he's saying, you know what? Let me make some clay and let me recreate. Because the creation's already taken place. Remember in John chapter 1, we see that he was there. I mean, he has control over creation. And let me recreate something here. Let me take the dust of the earth and give this guy sight. I wouldn't have been lost on these guys. He's giving this guy light. He says, while I'm here, it's still, it's still daylight. And my job is to bring light. And he gives this guy light. I mean, a major dose of light. Verse 7, he said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. So the guy goes and he washes and he comes back seeing. John spends very little time on the physical aspect of this healing. I think it's, it's, it's remarkable that when he does this, he sends this guy to the pool of Siloam. Translating, sent. And Jesus has been wanting to illustrate to these guys, he's been illustrating to them, they're just not listening, that he is the sent one. And that as he sends this guy to the pool of Siloam, that he receives his sight there at the pool, and he has no idea what the guy looks like that just healed him. No idea. Can't see him. But can he trust that he did it? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
I mean, that's a no-brainer. He can see. For the first time in his life, think about what it would have been like at the pool. You guys got mud in his eyes. Now, I, I had some slides. I didn't go into them, but I had some slides here. If, if you remember when we looked at the pool of Siloam, it was like a long distance from the temple proper. Oh, there you go. Um, you guys are good. <laughs> I lose my place and they, they cover me. Um, it's about a third of, the mi- of a mile. It's between a, a, a quarter and a half, somewhere around a third of a mile from the temple down to the Pool of Siloam. And it is a very steep grade. Uh, I've walked it. <laughs> and I walked it in the Kidron Valley, as you see here on the right. But uh, there was also a pathway that went down past the city of David. And I walked most of the way on that. And it is a steep hike. I mean, you can see it's terraced all the way down. And for this guy to go down there and to make that walk, I mean, to follow Jesus' instructions, that was a little bit of a trip for him. He's blind. On his way down there, he can't see. So he has to rely on the word that Jesus had given him in order to obtain that which was promised. Think about it. How often do we have to do that? The Bible tells us the just shall live by faith. This guy has to exercise faith coming out of the gate before he receives what God's promised. Uh, One of my favorite verses, uh, it's a verse that I will never forget. It's one of my life verses because of when my back has been against the wall and sometimes my back, I mean, I've gone through trials that have lasted years. It's Hebrews 10, 36. It says, for you have need of endurance, that after having done the will of God, that you may receive the promise. And that's for us. I don't know what you're facing this morning. But maybe you're on the road between the time you got mud in your eyes and you had an encounter with Jesus and you're just simply walking obediently, doing what he told you to do and walking by faith. But you haven't seen the end of it yet. Very often we go through tough circumstances. Very often we go through things that God doesn't tell us the end from the beginning. We have the advantage. When we read the Bible, we know, yeah, we know this guy's going to get healed. We know he's going to get you know, saved, you know, and we know all this other stuff. You know, yeah, we, and, and, but we can lose it in the translation. But Jesus very clearly told this guy to make a difficult trip on his way to receiving what he had promised to do. It's just what he does with us. Again, I don't know what anybody's going through. I know the things, the challenges in my life. And, and, you know, sometimes we have to just keep walking. Lord, I'm going to make my way to that pool. You're sending me there. I, I mean, the pool is called sent. The reason why the pool was called sent in their day was it was at the end of Hezekiah's tunnel, the Gihon Springs up outside of the city when Sennacherib, I think it was, threatened, uh, the Assyrians threatened Jerusalem. Uh, Hezekiah, the king, built this tunnel to funnel the springs down into the city. And this is at the southeast corner of the city. It's actually inside the city, but it's way far from the temple. And it's a big hike. And so here's this guy making his way down, and he doesn't get what Jesus has promised him until he gets there. We live in a world that very often, folks, promises us instant gratification. We live in a culture, I mean, I had to, 
I had to way more than once talk to my kids when they were growing up about, you know what, you don't always get the carrot the minute it's promised. You know, sometimes you've got you to gotta ride that thing out for a while before you get what's been promised to you. If you're going through something and you believe that you're in God's will and that you're, 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 you're simply walking by faith, hang in there. I, I've often wondered as I look at this, what if the guy had said, you know what, I'm just not going to go. What would he have missed? A lot. A lot. And we'll see what he, what he got next week, but we're out of time. Father, we want to thank you for this morning, uh, for a brief look at this guy uh, at the pool of Siloam receiving his sight. And, and Lord, we know that your will in each of our lives is to give us light, to give us sight, spiritual vision. And I pray for those this morning that may be going through trials or uh, have difficult circumstances that, uh, Lord, we simply submit ourselves by faith to you and your working, your power in our lives and trusting that we may not see it now, but and perhaps won't see it in this life, but we will see the end of that thing that we're dealing with. So I pray that you would give us endurance, Father, that you would work in our hearts, work in our lives. We pray that you would go before us the rest of this day, Lord, that you would bring to our remembrance the things that we've studied this morning and that you'd be glorified by it, that our hearts, our lives would be enriched as we apply your word to our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. And they all said, Amen. Amen.